And good morning. I bring you greetings from Hagerstown, Maryland, or uh, as Bishop John said, on the maps it says, there be dragons out in western uh, Maryland. Um, I want to first say uh, thank you to Father Scott, who's been just become just a great friend um, and ministry partner. Uh, it's not often... Uh, being a parish priest out in Western Maryland that you have a rector from Virginia say, hey, I'd like to get to know you, and I want to come to Hagerstown and buy you lunch to do it multiple times. Uh, and so Scott's just been a really good friend, uh, and I appreciate him so much. I'm thankful uh, to be with you all and with the saints of all saints uh, this morning. Uh, I bring you greetings from the vestry of new creation as well. Uh, at the end of this year, we will have been planting in Hagerstown. Uh, my wife and I, our family and our people, we will have been planting for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, we started in our living room. And what an amazing journey of faith and trust in the Lord um, it, has, it has been. Uh, my wife, uh, Brooke, sends her regrets that she and our children uh, can't be here today, but she is nine months pregnant. Literally, she is nine months pregnant. Uh, yeah, thank you. You can clap for that. That's great. Uh, this is our sixth child. Uh, we have two girls and uh, now four, four boys. So, um, yeah, so she is uh, keeping things low-key for the moment. Uh, but I want you to know, she has many good memories here in this church coming to Synod when Synod was hosted here. So she loves all saints and sends her greeting as well. Well, we're here today to look at the transfiguration. So would you pray with me as we do? Holy Father, may all within the sound of my voice receive this gospel and know themselves to be within it. Amen. Well, sometimes it's almost unfair, isn't it, how much Peter gets picked on in the New Testament? That's because he's always speaking up, of course. Peter likes the glory, but he doesn't get it when Jesus talks of suffering. He gets God's power, but he doesn't understand when God chooses to make himself known through weakness. If you've been watching The Chosen, how many of you are watching that series? All right, see quite a few hands. Definitely worthy of your time. I recommend it to you. Uh, they capture this dynamic about Peter really well. Peter spends the first few episodes in The Chosen acting more like Jesus' bouncer than his disciple. And he has the tendency, with all of the good intention in the world, to say the totally wrong thing at the totally wrong time. And famously, famously, just before the transfiguration, uh, Peter has the insight to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And in the next moment, he's telling Jesus that since that is the case, what? He's definitely not going to die. What does he get in return from Jesus? Mark 8, 33, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To put it lightly, Ouch. Peter is understanding and yet not understanding. He is like the blind man that Jesus healed at Bethsaida, seeing but not seeing clearly enough. And then we come to today, 
that monumental, that pivotal moment in the gospel that we call the transfiguration. It's the moment, of course, that caps off and encapsulates what the epiphany season is for us in our worship as Christians and Anglicans. We see in startling clarity the person, the message, and the mission of Jesus. It's a mountaintop in the Gospels that actually points us to another mountain. It is, as we will see, a glorious moment that is a ruinous sort of glory. I want you to keep that phrase in your minds, a ruinous glory. And here too, it's Peter who once again speaks up for the disciples and Peter who demonstrates that the disciples haven't yet fully grasped the person, the message, or the mission of Jesus. Even as they leave the mountain, they are what? They are tellingly silent. They don't yet know what to say and they won't know until Jesus' resurrection. Let's dive into the transfiguration itself. I want to look at that first, and then we'll do some application together. So looking at verse 28, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John for a time of prayer. But look at verse 32. The disciples soon fall asleep. While they're sleeping, something truly wonderful and amazing happens. Jesus is transfigured before them. If you were to flip over to Mark 9, you'd find that uh, Mark literally has the word that means a kind of metamorphosis happened. Jesus shines forth with the very glory of God in and upon him. It's interesting here, though. All the church fathers agree that the change did not take place in Jesus as if he became for a moment something he was previously not but that the change took place on the side of the disciples. Their eyes were opened to behold his glory, the eternal, uncreated light of God. No wonder they fell on their faces, terrified. No wonder that after it was all over, Jesus had to take them by the hand and tell them not to be afraid. That's actually a very beautiful image of the gospel. Jesus coming to them, touching them, telling them to rise and not be afraid. The disciples walked off the mountain, probably looking like they had just stuck their finger in an electrical outlet. And in the midst of all of this, two Old Testament heavyweights, Moses and Elijah, speak with Jesus. Now, cue Peter's ill-timed and inappropriate comment. For some reason, Peter pipes up here and his comment is this, hey, Jesus, why don't we build some tents for you guys? At this point, I can just imagine all three of them turning toward Peter and giving him the face palm. In fact, in Matthew's version of the story, Peter barely gets the words out before he is silenced by God the Father, who says what for the second time? This is my son. Listen to him. Different theories have been put forward as to what Peter was getting at in verse 33. But whatever the case, verse 33 actually directly tells us that he said this. Why? Because he didn't know what to say. Because he was terrified. But here's one thing that's clear to me. 
One thing at least I think we can say about Peter's words. The fact that he talks here about setting up structures on the mountain probably means that he thought it would be a good idea to camp out in Jesus' glory for a while. After all, Moses himself was on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days. So why not hang out for a bit in the glory? Maybe we can even get Jesus off this whole death and resurrection thing while we're at it. Maybe that's what Peter is thinking. Peter fails to understand. He has zeal, but not yet knowledge. Perhaps if he had been awake and listened more carefully to the conversation between Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, he would have understood. We read from Luke today. From Luke's telling of the story, we know that they were talking about what? Jesus' departure. Verse 31. That's an interesting word there, because the word plainly used, if you have an ESV, it even footnotes this for for you. The word plainly used is Exodus. So you have the one who led the Exodus talking to the one who's about to accomplish a greater and more perfect Exodus. This scene is a great testament to how the entire Bible points forward to and looks back upon the work of Christ. That's how we ought to read our Bible. You have Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, who represents all the prophets, bearing witness to what God is doing in Jesus. It's it's what it's all about. What is the very conversation of heaven? Jesus' cross, his death and resurrection, and it still is. There these three are, speaking of Jesus' perfect and complete satisfaction on the cross and his glorious resurrection And in the midst of it all lay the disciples, confused and bewildered, half awake, understanding and not understanding. Again, what the disciples could not understand at this point is that the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration pointed to the greater glory of another mountain. What is that mountain? Mount Calvary. That glory would look very different. At that mountain, Jesus would not be flanked by saints in glory, but by sinners in misery. At that mountain, the Father would not boldly identify Jesus as his own, but he would avert his face, remaining silent. At that mountain, there would be no bright glory, but only the darkness of sin. But this glory, the glory of Mount Calvary, would be the clearest revelation of the person, message, and mission of our Lord. Amen. Now let's turn and do some application. We dare not be too hard on Peter. Amen. For we are often so very much like him. Truth be told, we'd rather hang out on the mountain. I know I would. And we'd like to believe that that's God's plan for our lives that he would be pleased for us to be on top now rather than traverse the valleys, the highways, even the ditches of life with Christ on the way to the cross. As Loretta Lynn once sung so famously, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. 
Perhaps we look back on a time in our life when God's presence seemed particularly sweet, particularly near to us, and we think to ourselves, if I could only get back there, things would be better. Maybe it was before you had kids. Maybe it was before you were married or when you could travel abroad or whatever it is. Maybe corporately, you hear look back on a time in All Saints that was particularly precious pre-COVID, whatever it is. And you think, if only we could get back there, we would be okay. But listen, to believe that would be to miss the fundamental shape of the Christian life in this world. Paul makes it so clear throughout the book of Romans that the essential shape and pattern of the Christian life is just like the shape of Jesus' life as we grow up into him, Christ our head. If we are Christ's, then our lives too will be marked not by hanging out on the mountain, but by what? Death and resurrection. The pattern for the Christian life is cross, then glory, not the other way around. If you look in Luke, you'll very quickly find that the cross flanks the transfiguration. It goes before it and it follows it. Christian, this is God's will for your life. That the old you be put to death and the new you be raised with Christ day by ordinary day. Paul puts this perfectly in Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Every day, each one of us are being told by our culture that our lives must be glorious now. And it's a lie. We're being told on social media to curate a perfect life and show it to others. That's not true. The Christian life isn't glorious now. It doesn't have to be, at least. Interestingly, the same word, metamorphosis, used for Jesus' transfiguration, shows up here. And here it refers to the change that God brings in us as we become more and more of a living sacrifice to God, renewed day by day, as we are immersed into the death of our baptism and raised to the new life we share in our union with Christ. You see, if we have a view of the Christian life that demands this life be glorious, that we encounter no challenges and go through no valleys, then we miss all of that. Paul puts it even more pointedly in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Listen to this. Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. We give the last word to Jesus. Amazingly, he told his disciples all of this right before the transfiguration. Listen to his words from Luke 9, 23 to 24. If anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
Saints, there are things we cannot learn on the mountain that God wants to teach us. Because his way, his way for us, just as it was for his son, is the way of the cross. Amen? Just after the transfiguration, as the disciples literally descend into a valley, what's the first thing that happens? They're confronted with a demonized person they cannot help. Valleys are tough. But it's also there that the grace of the Savior is powerfully present to deliver us and others. It is in the valley that the glory of Christ shines all the brighter. Amen? Three Wednesdays ago, we had a woman, uh, I'll call her Ruth, and I'm like definitely sure there's a Ruth here this morning, so apologies for that. Uh, We had her come to New Creation looking for help. Uh, Our group was down at uh, Walnut Towers, which is a a public housing complex in Hagerstown. Um, And because we've ministered there just about every week for a year and a half, uh, the gentleman who was with her knew that she needed to come and talk to us about her problem. What was her problem? She believed she was demonized and wanted deliverance. Thankfully, my senior warden was leading midday prayer uh, that day. So after the dismissal, we were able to sit down with her to hear her story, to pray first for forgiveness and then for deliverance, for reconciliation and then for freedom. And about 45 minutes later, Ruth left grateful, at ease, and assured of her freedom in Christ. Yeah, amen. I turned to Dave, my senior warden, and I said, well, the Lord threw you in the deep end today. Uh, Truth is, I I was glad that he was there. Otherwise, I would have felt the same way. But here's what we most deeply felt, friends. We felt joy and excitement. We felt joy and excitement that we were being used of the Lord in the valleys of life, in the harvest of the gospel. We felt joy and excitement with Jesus as he walked with us in the valley. Now, All Saints is a congregation with immense resources. And listen, I'm thankful for that. I thank God for that. I thank God for what you have here and all that you're doing with it. It's my prayer for you that you will continue to use all you have in Jesus to pour into the valley of your changing community. It's rhythms of daily life. Where, listen, the need is the greatest, the glory shines the brightest, and the grace of God is powerfully present to deliver and save there. Amen? Let me end with this. Author David Garland writes this. Many in the church today suffer from a form of Bible amnesia. They remember only the parts that promise wealth, happiness, and glory, and forget or fail to listen to the calls for self-sacrifice, suffering, and bearing one's cross. They want to skip suffering 101 and move on to advanced placement in glory 909. Friends, the transfiguration is the place where the glory is the brightest and the cross is at the center of the conversation. So let's journey this road together. 
with the cross to bear and that same cross to bear us up today and throughout this Lenten season, because this is true. We give God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory, now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God.